everyone. Welcome to this week's recording of Times Will Tell, the Times of Israel's feature piece that comes out every Friday. Today I'm speaking with Federica Sasso. She is a freelance writer here in Israel for the Times of Israel, here in Jerusalem, I should say. She is covering the custody fight for Eitan Biran, age six, the Israeli-born child who was orphaned in the May cable car tragedy in Italy. Now, some of our U.S. listeners may be less familiar with this extremely tragic story. Eitan was the sole survivor of the cable car crash in Mataron, Italy, and he was very seriously injured at the time. And his parents, younger baby brother, and his great-grandparents, who were visiting from Israel at the time, were killed, along with nine other people. The crash was caused by a cable that snapped about 16 feet from the summit of the mountain. Now, normally, a safety brake would have stopped the runaway car immediately, but for some reason, it was operating illegally with the brake disabled, and that aspect of the accident is still very much under investigation. Back to Eitan. Like I said, he was born in Israel, but his parents moved to Italy with him when he was just two months old. His father, Amit, was enrolled in medical school in Pavia, not far from Milan. Shortly after the horrific accident, an Italian court placed Eitan, again, fighting for his life at the time in a hospital, under the guardianship of his paternal aunt, Aya Biran Nerko, who also lives in the same small town. And he essentially had grown up with his aunt and her husband and their kids. But on September 11th, his maternal grandfather, Shmuel Peleg, was visiting, and he drove Eitan to Switzerland and secretly brought him to Israel aboard a chartered private plane. There have been accusations that the Mossad aided the grandfather. These are accusations that he has completely denied. And now, Eitan, essentially we're less than a month later, he is now at the center of this international custody battle between his father's family, some of whom are living in Italy, and his mother's family living here in Israel. It's obviously an incredibly painful story as these two grieving families fight over this surviving child. So Federica, let me bring Federica back in here. She wrote a very gripping feature about this story um, and really looking at this tale of different cultures, Israeli and Italian, and one that Federica, who is Italian and has been living in Israel for a couple of years, more than a couple. She'll tell us in a minute. She's very well equipped to explain this aspect of it to us. And we're going to talk about the article. We're going to talk about this story and what it really means in terms of these two cultures, in a sense, battling it out for this child. So first, hi, Federica. How are you? Hi, I'm very well. Thanks for having me. We're happy to have you, even though it's obviously a story that's I'm sure, incredibly painful to research and to write. Um, how long have you been following the story of Eitan Biran and this tragedy that happened uh, back in May? Well, I think as every Italian, I've been following it as, as a reader mainly at the beginning when the cable car uh, incident happened and it was a terrible incident, I think, like the worst in many years in Italy. So the country was shocked, um, especially looking at the fact that not only many 
people died, like 14 people died in the accident. But then there was this child who survived. There was news even, I, I don't know if this is verified, but like there was, I think some newspaper wrote that the doctor suspected that maybe he was able to survive because his father was hugging him. So right. he was protected. holding him to his chest. I remember that also. Yeah, reading exactly. that. Exactly. So everything was, you know, a huge tragedy. And then there was this uh, gathering of the whole country around the fate of the child who fought for his life. So at the beginning from here, I, I was following it as a reader. And then when, you know, the child arrived uh, here in Israel, then the coverage spiked again. And so I started understanding if I could write something about that. And I went on September 23rd to the family court in Tel Aviv where there was the first hearing right. um, about, you know, the, the, the battle between the two branches of the family. What was the courtroom like? What was that scene like? So the scene was, according to veteran Israeli journalists, um, it was very, you know, it was a, it was an unusual scene to see so much press at the family court because usually these, you know, hearings are closed doors. And also this one, of course, uh, was closed doors and also the other hearings that have been going on these last days, no press was admitted. But outside of the of the courtroom, there were, there was quite a few Israeli press and I would say many Italian reporters, like all of the main news agencies and all of the main dailies and TVs, um, correspondents from Italy were there. So it was a very, you know, hectic scene um, and very painful also because when, you know, the, the like representatives from both branches of the family arrived. Of course, everyone is very much in pain and, and, and still grieving very much. So it was really somber. But at the same time, there is this... Um, tension, crazy yeah. tension, right? Exactly. Around trying to understand what the next step will be. What do the Italian press in Israel, how do they interpret this situation? How do they look at it? The Italian press is trying to convey the fact that this is a case in translation, if we can use this expression. Right. Uh, because this case really, like, um, like gathers lots of uh, cultural and, uh, like, elements about Israeli identity that are absolutely not immediately understandable for the Italian public. So... The correspondents who are based here, like, have been trying to create explain a narration that. and explain that. You know, as as you well know, like, it's complicated. It's it's an intricate case on the judicial level because there's many levels of of this uh, battle that are going on at the same time. Uh, in Italy, there's two different uh, levels. One is relating to the custody, and one is relating to what you know. We have to see if. It was an abduction, what happened on September 11, or if it was not an abduction. Right now in Tel Aviv, the third hearing of the three uh, days of uh, work that the judge of the family court had scheduled is going on. And uh, after today, we should know in the next weeks, in the next days, it's not clear how long it will take. We should know if the Hague Convention of the unabducted minors uh, applies to this case. So if Shmuel Peleg did abduct the kid, 
and the kid needs to go back to Italy. And in that case, um, the real um, legal procedure about custody. custody will start again. If it is a kidnapping or not will be decided here because the Hague Convention determines that it's the country where the kid was led that has to decide if it was abduction or not. Got But it. for the Italian court, it's what we say, I think, sequestro di persona, which is, yes, ab abduction. So okay. there is that element relating to Shmuel Peleg. But... The grandfather. Mm -hmm. The grandfather. But when... If they... Uh, Israeli judge will determine that the convention does apply, then everything goes back to Italy. And at that point, we will know what happens because the maternal branch of the family, meaning right. the Peleg family, in Israel, did right. appeal. Yes, did appeal also in Italy. So on, on October 22nd, we're going to have another hearing in Italy which I don't know if it will be suspended or not, but in theory it is scheduled because they had appealed the Italian court decision to give custody to Ayabiran. So there's so much going on on the judi judicial level wow. that you know this Hague decision in Israel might upend or not. We Got will it. have to okay. see what happens. So incre legally incredibly complicated. Okay. Yeah. So then, but going back to a lot of what your article was dealing with, which is speaking to Italians, Italians living in Israel, Italians in Italy, and how these different sides see the situation. There's, of course, the line that the grandfather, uh, Shmuel Peleg, gave once he had landed in Israel with Eitan, with the little boy, and he said, Eitan is home. And what did that mean? Eitan is back in Israel. Of course, a little boy who has lived most of his life in Italy, I'm sure he visited many times in Israel, but his home base was Italy. And my the thing that I kept on thinking about over these months of reading it is how do Italian I understood completely what the grandfather meant that this situation this horrible thing happened, he lost his daughter, he Uh, and the 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 great the great grandparents. So the great grandparents who died in the accident were the maternal great grandparents. Okay, got it. Yeah. So his in laws and his daughter and his other grandson and his son in law all were killed in this accident, and all he can think about is having his the the remaining surviving grandchild back home in Israel. What do Italians think about this? What are their reactions to this? So their reaction in Italy was, you know, of shock and like it was immediately understood sort of an abduction uh, because of the secrecy of the operation, because there was this custody uh, that was given to the end. And again, like the lawyers might go into the you know details of this custody and say well actually no he had a right to travel with the kid and this is what the sentence is about but the main storyline was that he took the kid in in a secret way and and brought it out of Italy and took it to Israel and it was like an uprooting from whatever was considered the usual context of this kid. So the reaction was mainly on an emotional level, 
much more, I would say, or or mainly on an emotional level, and then on a second, uh, you know, in a second moment, also on a judicial level um, of, of shock and surprise and enragement. And I think that the majority of the Italian public did not see why he needed, despite why the grief he needed to and despite do that. the pain, why right. he needed to do it this way. Right. He had appealed the decision of the court, so there were ways to battle this decision and to prove that he had a right to take the kid home. So there was not an understanding of his reasoning. And here I think is where like reporters, the Italian reporters based in Israel are trying to decode what most likely nobody's in you know this family's heart and mind right. but what most likely was going on which was actually they wanted the kid home as soon as possible and this concept of home as you were mentioning before is exactly at the core and 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 the heart of this of this whole uh, series of events, uh, what home is for Italians Eitan's home is Italy because he has that's lived where he's all been his raised. life, right. and that's what he knew. And despite the fact that he was, of course, he's he's an Israeli kid. He was raised by Israeli parents. parents. So, but at the same time, his environment and his daily life was was Italian. So, why doing this to a kid that is deeply traumatized? And but on the other side, and this <laughs> is what we've been reading yeah. in the right. Israeli press, and also you know. He was very close to this family, apparently, to the maternal side of the family. Um, he was very attached to them. This is something that I think will emerge in the, you know, throughout the hearings and throughout the judicial case. Um, but the Italian public did not, you know, did see not very see much. it that way. Like Cool Runnings meets Bull Durham. Designated Hitters is the story of how a team that doesn't even have a baseball stadium made it all the way to the Olympics, and how a ragtag group of dreamers found themselves playing and almost beating the world's best baseball players. Produced by Soul Shop in partnership with the Israel Association of Baseball, join me, Hannah Weinberg, and experience the glorious intersection of the American pastime and the Holy Land, wherever you listen to your podcasts. What I was going to say, and this is sort of for the benefit of listeners, is that the concept of Israelis going abroad to study is, of course, very common. I can think of four different people that I know that's who studied medicine in Italy, in different cities in Italy. And obviously, we don't know what the Biran's plans were in the future, but very often people go study in a different country, whether it's Italy or anywhere else. And there are lots of people who might end up staying and making their home in that country. And there's lots of Israelis who end up coming back. It might be five years later or 10 years later or 15 years later. There is a very strong pull to come back to Israel because Israel is a very family-centric place. It is still a place where grandparents who are retired, will go pick up their grandkids from kindergarten or from preschool at the end of the day or from elementary school where families have big family dinners together on Shabbat, on Friday nights. A lot of that happens. And that's where the maternal family's instincts in that sense are coming from, obviously. But what I wanted to ask you, Federica, is 
as an Italian who is living abroad and who has lived abroad for many years, um, are Italians like Israelis in that way, in that sense of staying close to home when possible, even in our global village? Um, and even if they do travel, even if they do live abroad, always having that desire to come back to home base, to go back to Italy. Is there a similar sensibility in Italy? Yes, yes. I would say that the two countries are very much similar. Um it's not a given. There are people who live, let's say, in Rome and move to Milan or, you know, from the south to the north or in different areas of the north. So it's not such a given that given the size of the country, you will have, you know, your grandparents next to you. But it's uh, it's very similar to Israel. Like in my case, for example, my sister lives very close to my mother. My mother helps her with the, with the children. Exactly what you just described is happening in my own family. Right. So I would say that on a cultural level, the two societies are very, very much alike. Um, I think in this specific case, what the Italian public doesn't grasp is the uh, the pull to come back uh-huh. because your the fullness of your identity for some Israelis is perceived to be fulfilled only maybe in an easier way, if not only in Israel mm-hmm. and. We Italians don't feel that. Like I remember when I was living in America and I was studying in America, I met countless Italians who have been, you know, based in New York or based in America in other states. For years, and right. For years. And they went there for their studies or they went there for work. And everyone has this very strong desire to come back. And they eventually do come back. I remember even other people who are not Italians say, oh, you Italians are always talking about Going how home. much you miss Italy and right. going home and how much is complicated. So there is this sense of home is Italy no matter what. Right. But this concept that your identity might be compromised if you live abroad is not something that we necessarily understand. Mm. And uh, in some of the declarations that the Pelic family uh, made to the press, there is an idea that for them it was really important to establish that Eitan's home is Israel because only here he will be able not to lose his Jewishness, his sense of, you know, his roots, basically. Right. Uh, despite the fact that he would be living with an Israeli, the other side of the family is also and, Israeli. Right, sure, sure. And is there a sense in the Italian press... Um, what what is the conversation? What's the discussion around the Jewishness, the Israeliness? Is there is there a more negative se- uh, sensibility now toward the maternal family, toward the Peleg family, because of the grandfather swooping in and taking him back in, in secrecy? Is there is there some kind of negativity now about Israel and about Israelis about their desire to have everyone close together back home? No, I don't think there is a sense of negativity. There is, you know, we will see also what the judge will decide. I think also there is, we're talking now about the emotional aspect, like, you know, countless psychologists went on Italian TV and the question was, what is this kid going through? And, you know, morning TV shows, like dissecting, like what's happening in his mind and what will happen if he's now living in Israel. So there is this psychological, 
psychological, if we want to call it psychological, but like the emotional aspect of, uh, you know, what's happening around Eitan's, you know, well-being and future. And then there is a the question of sovereignty. Like, you know, if there was a violation of Italian sovereignty with this, you know, um, with transferring the kid, we will see if it's abduction or if it's not abduction. Right. And it will be courts to decide that. Um, so there is... Um, an, a misunderstanding, like a, a sense of what is going on, why it was so necessary to do so necessary to do that. I think maybe, um, according to what the court will decide, if they was will establish that it's the case that Eitan needs to stay in Israel, maybe you know we will see how this will be interpreted. But right. at this, at this. As we stand, I don't think that this reflects on Israel. Also, we have to highlight, I think, that Israeli politicians didn't speak in favor of this in any possible way. Right. Like Israeli media is not presenting this as a, you know, kosher not thing to do. Right. Like right. everyone is trying to understand both sides, but there was not like a defense of this gesture in any possible way. I'm thinking about the fact, of course, the may, a big difference between Italy and Israel is that Israel deals with a lot of tragedies. Tragedy, not of this kind necessarily, but, tra- but tragic situations are unfortunately not all that uncommon here. And when there is a tragedy, there is this tendency and desire to swoop in and protect and take care of the situation in the way that a family member or a family knows best. Italy, of course, that has not had to deal with tragic situations in the same kind of the same kind of frequency that Israel has. And I would imagine that's a lot that has a lot to do with the difference of attitude as well on the part of the Peleg, on the part of the maternal family, and on the part of the Italian, you know, the state, the country, the attitude, the people thinking about this little boy and what is better for him and what is going to help him. I don't know. Um, it's a thought that I'm having. Yes, I I think you're right. I think that, um, you know, you were asking also beforehand if there's like a sense, like a more negative outlook towards the country. I would say that, you know, what I try to understand is that maybe here, and in Italy as well, actually, this is also similarity. Also Italians are just like, you know, going through the loopholes many times. <laughs> but but very much. Lots of combina in Italy too. Yeah, combina, combina. <laughs> yes. But, uh, but I would say that when I was looking at what happened, you know, I thought, oh, you see, this is a little bit of an Israeli way. Like, I take care of this. I make sure that my family is okay, that this kid is okay, and it's taken care of the way I think is the best for him. And then I will take care of what, you know, the consequences are. And also, you know, talking with lawyers, it appears that the grandfather was convinced, and this is what they declared to the press. I think, I don't remember if it was the grandmother, but like, I remember reading in the press that they they were thinking that they were allowed to travel with the kid. Right, uh, right. I've read that as well, right. So, you know, there wasn't a sense that they were breaking the law. They were just like, okay, I'm going to act this way. I'm not breaking any law because I'm allowed to, to Technically, to I'm not breaking Technically, any law. Technically, right. I'm not breaking any law. You know, of course, like we're talking just about, you know, like I remember the, the um, 
Peleg lawyers in Italy highlighted the fact that uh, Shmuel Peleg was never notified the fact that he was not allowed to travel. So th- that's that's what you know the public opinion is looking at. Why did you need to do it this way? Right. You know. So th- this is this this concern in part, but in terms of intention, like knowing that they were not breaking any law according to their own vision of the facts, they thought, okay. We're not going anywhere, and I think the the maternal grandmother also declared that she has no trust in, you know, in the Italian court or 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 Shmuel Peleg. I don't remember which one of the two, but like the family says, we don't trust the Italian court anymore, and they wanted, I think, justice to be made in Israel, right, and, on their home turf. Exactly. Exactly. So in that sense, I think there is this, you know, okay, let's take initiative, let's act, uh, let's make this happen this the way we know how to do it. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Right. All right. So what happens now, Federica? Where where are where do we stand now in terms of this court case? When when do you expect to see the next sort of stage in this story? What 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 comes next? So these last three days, we had the three hearings that had been scheduled uh, by the family court judge um, in Tel Aviv. And uh, so tonight... Uh, it should be finishing. I don't know if it just finished uh, maybe some minutes ago. It was still going on when we started talking. Um, So I don't know if there will be a need to add more hearings according to what we've heard from the lawyers so far, no. So ideally, I think we should have a sentence about the applicability of the Hague uh, Convention. maybe in the next weeks. We don't know exactly how long it will take. According to the convention, from the moment um, Aya Biran requested the court to see the case and to hear the case, uh, there are six weeks uh, to get to a sentence. So we should have a decision maybe in the next days or, or weeks. We will see. And right. then there is a chance that, you know, the part that is not happy with the decision may take it to the Supreme Court. Um, so we might have that step too. We, we don't know if we will get there. But like right. the immediate next step is a, is a sentence about the decision. Was this abduction or not, according to the Hague Convention? Right. So sort of dealing um, with that piece of it and then really going back to the custody battle. Exactly, exactly. Because if it was abduction or not, it really changes where the custody battle will take place. Right. Incredibly complex story. And you just, you think about this little boy and what he's had to deal with, the challenges and sadness in his life. Absolutely, absolutely. In the meantime, apparently, for what we know, like he's sharing time with both families, so he's mm-hmm. seen both branches and staying with both branches of the family. And one thing that is also unusual in this case is that usually, you know, court cases for minors are, you know, closed doors. You don't know who is the minor. There's a lot of protection around this. Sure. And at the same time, not only we know who the minor is and, and you know, we know so much details about this case, but... It's apparently the first time or maybe one of the very few cases and where the Hague Convention is being applied when there's no parent because the convention was designed for a custody battle between two parents. But in this case, it's two different levels of 
relationship, like, you know, wow. familiarity maybe is the right word in English. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this also makes it apparently more complicated and more complex to reach a verdict. So Federica, we thank you very much for going through this story with us. Um, obviously, we're going to keep on following the story of Eitan Biran and how he is and what's happening with him and hoping really that the best outcome is decided in this case. Absolutely, absolutely. I think this is what everyone wants and I think this is also what makes this case very complex. Um, like I was I was writing in the article, everyone goes back to the Solomonic judgment. Yes. Uh, and in that case, we had an imposter. But in this case, we have two families which are honestly very much interested in the well-being. They just seem to have very different, different understanding ways. of what, yes, yes this well-being where this well-being can happen and take place and what's best for him. And what's best for the child. Absolutely. Thank you, Federica. Thank you very much, Jessica. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for Times Will Tell. We'll be back next week. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site. Thank you so much for listening to Times Will Tell and a special thanks to TLV1 Studios for sound production help. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Times Will Tell on all podcast platforms. (laughs) 